This Savior, he is risen. Please stand as we hear a resurrection account from the Gospel of John. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my side in my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray now as we turn to God's word together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give us faith to believe and so find life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Seeing is believing. That's what many people today say when they hear uh, that Christians believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. Seeing is believing. I'll believe it when I see it. There are many other objections, of course. Some people argue that it's uh, a myth, like the ancient pagan stories of a cycle of death and life. They've read about some of these pagan myths. They think it's the same sort of thing, and they just sweep it aside because of that. But uh, as literary scholar C.S. Lewis long ago realized, the account of the resurrection of Jesus is not in the same type of writing, the same genre as uh, myth. So we just heard it read. This is written without embellishment, without any element of fantasy. It's a straightforward style, not like myth, but much more like history. Other people said that Jesus did not really die or that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Well, those sort of objections, though, found on the rock of common sense, what we know about, about people. I mean, the, the Romans. I mean, if anyone knew how to kill someone, it was the Romans. They had a pretty good track record in getting that right. And, uh, well, who forgets where a loved one is buried? It's just not the way people behave. It's not what happens. And so some more recently have said, well, here's, here's the real deal. In our modern Western mindset, we have misinterpreted the resurrection as a fact when actually all along it was only intended as a sort of religious symbol. 
but you know, fashionable as that sounds in our sort of contemporary cultural milieu, fashionable and interesting as that may sound, it really is historically highly implausible. I mean, can we actually imagine that the disciples who died for this that they preached would be willing to die for a, a, a symbol, for a sentimental symbol? No, actually, the more you think about it, uh, the resurrection actually becomes, well, a problem for those who do not believe it. <laughs> See, if, if, if we don't accept the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead, if that's our position this morning, we are actually left with a, with a different kind of fact, which is hard to ponder. <laughs> and that fact is the sudden emergence of the Christian church and its triumph throughout the world. Something happened in Jerusalem. Something extraordinary. Not normal, not typical, extraordinary. Not simply yet another ancient myth. There are a whole bunch of them, and it didn't have this impact. Much less a, a hazy hallucination, or as one wonderful book from 1970 uh, put it, um, a hallucinogenic drug called Jesus. No, no, no. If Jesus did not die and rise again, why did the message of that, of his resurrection, spread like wildfire throughout the whole world? Something happened, something extraordinary, which is why. The most common objection to the Christian belief that Jesus physically rose from the dead is actually not antagonism, but agnosticism. Not outright unbelief, but prevailing careful consideration, or what is better known as doubt. So when he was asked what he would say to God if he met him after he died, famed unbeliever Bertrand Russell simply replied, Not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. Or as many people today say, I'll believe it when I see it. Seeing is believing. And so it is remarkable that our passage this morning, one of Jesus' intimate friends expresses exactly this doubt. And even more remarkably and graciously, <laughs> Jesus provides him with what he asks. Look down with me at the passage in front of you in our worship folder. You'll find it on page 907 in the Pew Bibles. John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Well, the passage comes towards the end of John's gospel account of Jesus, and structurally it's divided into two parts. The first part, verses 24 to 29, is a story. It's a story about how someone who's hard to convince becomes convinced. And this story reveals a particular blessing from Jesus. So verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then the second part of the passage, verses 30 to 31, then explain how this blessing for those who believe without seeing, those who have not seen and yet believe, can still be attained today. (laughs) So the main proposition then this morning is as follows. Seek the blessing of believing without seeing because it brings us alive. First, seeing with believing. Second, believing without seeing. First, seeing with believing. So look down at verses 24 to 29 with me, if you will, and you'll see then this story, how Thomas saw and believed, and it's uh, there to show us that if even someone like Thomas could be persuaded to believe, then the evidence of the resurrection must be very strong and therefore also believable for those of us who are of an equally concrete, practical, and down-to-earth frame of mind as was Thomas. The story shows us three things. One, Thomas was hard to convince. Two, Jesus convinced even Thomas. Three, Thomas worshipped Jesus. Let's look at them together. One, Thomas was hard to convince. This may have partly been a matter of uh, his uh, natural temperament, just the way that Thomas was wired as a person. Uh, Thomas only appears a couple of times in John's Gospel. In chapter 11, verse 16, he comes across with a temperament which is rather pessimistic. Uh, There, they're about to go and see uh, Lazarus raised from the dead by Jesus, and He says uh, that the disciples should go to the tomb of Lazarus, that they may all die with him. Hardly a cheery fellow, you know. And then chapter 14, verse 5, he comes across with a temperament that's a little obstinate, resistant. So Jesus is talking about how, you know, if you believe in him, you're going to go to heaven and all that. And then Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He's sort of obstinate, you know. But Thomas being hard to convince may not have actually just been because of his personal temperament or his character. It may have come about through the way that he thought, his worldview, his philosophy, his sort of set of beliefs. One thing you notice about each time we meet Thomas is that he always objects to the idea of life after death with Lazarus, about heaven, and now even with Jesus. See, there were some Jews at the time, especially a group known as the Sadducees, who did not accept the possibility of life after death. They just didn't believe it. They didn't think it could happen. Thomas may have sympathized with such a presumption. There were many other Jews who did at the time. At any rate, if we do not certainly know why Thomas was hard to convince, we certainly do know that he was. He is circumspect, not credulous, careful, not gullible, and the last person ever likely to be taken in by a religious fake. Perhaps some of us are a bit like Thomas in this regard. 
We think church is for simple-minded folk who believe every cloud has a silver lining and need religion as a crutch. We are not liable to be taken in by any amount of fancy music, pageantry, or oratory. Well, even someone like Thomas ended up believing. One, Thomas was hard to convince. Two, Jesus graciously convinced Stephen Thomas. Thomas was not with the other disciples when they first saw Jesus. You can see that in verse 24. And such absence from the congregation led, as it normally does, to a missed opportunity for spiritual encounter with Jesus. And so now Thomas, having missed that opportunity, he now, in verse 25, is resolutely resisting the pressing witness of all the other disciples, despite what they told him. Actually, the, the verb there is in the imperfect tense in the original, and it may then suggest that the disciples didn't just tell Thomas once, but they were telling him over and over again, you know, we've seen Jesus, Thomas. Come on, we saw him. We saw him, Thomas. Come on. Oh, but Thomas will have none of it. No, Thomas insists on a detailed and, frankly, somewhat gruesome list of the physical evidence that he requires before he will believe. In fact, he actually wants to place his hand in Jesus' side. In other words, Thomas wants to do an up-close and personal anatomical examination of Jesus. Scientific, medical, practical Thomas wants to put Jesus in a laboratory and perform an experiment on the body. Otherwise, he says, he will never believe. Actually, the never at the end of verse 25 is, in the original, a double negative. That is, no, no, uh, spoken for emphasis, to underline his refusal. No way will I believe. Ah, uh-uh. However, Thomas was congregated with the disciples the following Sunday, and his no was to be overturned by Jesus' yes. And so eight days later, verse 26, can you see? They counted inclusively then, so that's the following Sunday after Resurrection Sunday, the next Sunday. Now once more Jesus comes, and once more he stands among them despite the doors being locked. The resurrection body of Jesus is recognizable by the disciples as Jesus, and yet there's something different about it at the same time. Shut doors are no barrier to this resurrection body. You can lock the door of your heart, but you cannot keep out the Jesus who loves your heart and stands and declares to us, peace be with you. Verse 26. Well, this peace is the Jewish greeting, shalom. But after the resurrection, uh, it has its inherent special meaning openly revealed. God's peace to all who believe in Jesus. Peace, meaning wholeness, not simply 
absence of war, but the whole person now in a right relationship with God. May Jesus come and stand among us this day and declare peace. Jesus then graciously, kindly, lovingly gives the precise physical evidence that Thomas had requested. Can you see verse 27? Exactly what he'd asked. Hands, as well as side. We're not told whether Thomas actually touched Jesus or not. If Jesus is here commanding Thomas to touch, then presumably Thomas did. If Jesus is uh, simply exhibiting his wounds, then it seems more likely that Thomas was sufficiently now persuaded by the mere sight of Jesus. And so Jesus summarizes Thomas's new faith by saying, have you believed because you've seen me, not have you believed because you touched me. At any rate, though one, Thomas was hard to convince, still two, Jesus graciously convinced even Thomas. Do you know someone who is hard to convince? Do not despair. Jesus' love and grace is such that he does not turn his back even on a Thomas or refuse to meet his requests for evidence, but graciously moves towards him with peace. Shalom. Three, not only was Thomas hard to convince, not only did Jesus graciously nonetheless convince even Thomas. Three, Thomas worshipped Jesus. Look at verse 28. My Lord and my God. What a strange reversal. Thomas's doubt changed to fullness of faith. Thomas's hesitation changed to certain conviction. Thomas's objections changed to a passionate proclamation. And yet so often that is exactly what happens. Our weaknesses are made strengths by God. Doubting Thomas is now the early church's worship leader. (laughs) My Lord and my God. Some scholars have argued that uh, Thomas's worship of Jesus is too advanced for this early development of the Christian tradition, but that is to so assume the so-called developmental hypothesis of Christology that it undermines Jesus' own teaching that he is God. In fact, earlier in John's Gospel, the religious leaders then realized Jesus was claiming to be equal with God, chapter 5, verse 18. Others have wondered whether Thomas's words are not worship, but actually an exclamation of surprise, a sort of OMG of the first century. But no pious monotheistic Jew like Thomas would ever take on their lips the name of God as a curse word. Others still have attempted to say that Thomas is not worshipping Jesus, but worshipping God the Father, that Thomas's worship is directed up, not to Jesus across the room in front of him. 
But that is as biased a prejudice against the natural reading of the text as imaginable, not to mention that Jesus accepts Thomas's worship as he at last correctly believed, verse 29. So if it's not credible to think Thomas made a mistake, what was it that convinced him to worship Jesus? See those hands. See that side. Think what it must have been like to see Jesus standing in the room in front of you with nail marks in his hands and with an open gaping hole in his side. Think of the astonishment of being able to look into the side where the spear had been thrust. All the normal laws of human anatomy have been transformed. Whoever this is, he's not merely human. And then think what it would have been like for this person to repeat back to you the very words that you had spoken when he had not been physically present, the words of doubt that you had secretly shouted, now repeated by the one about whom you had uttered them with peace and victory over death and sovereign omniscience and divine omnipotence, a locked door, no more barrier than a flimsy curtain, death, no more end, now the beginning, and private doubts openly answered by him standing in front of you, who is God? Indeed. Thomas does not just say Lord and God, he says my Lord and my God. Isn't this amazing, Christians? That we can call Jesus our own? That he is not just the Lord and the God, he is your Lord and your God. He knows you, he loves you, he wants you. You are his, and he is yours. You not only proclaim him as the great God of the universe, you now reclaim him as your God as well. All the millions of people in the world, and yet Thomas is personally approached by Jesus Himself, all the millions of people in the world, and Jesus has an individual care for you such that He is your God and my God. What a comfort is this when we're alone, when we are doubting, when we are hurting, when we are questioning, when we're in a crowd of other people, that every single one of us is personally known to Jesus. And Jesus, if we worship Him as God, is not just now the God but is now my God and yours. My Lord and my God. And so first, seeing with the believing, the story of how even Thomas came to believe. Second, believing without seeing. 
And now Jesus speaks to us. Can you see how he, as it were, turns out of the text and addresses us? He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, they had seen, but we have not. See, this blessing for those who believe without seeing often provokes two questions, and then John immediately answers them in verses 30 to 31 like this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So these verses, which are a summary of the purpose of John's gospel, but they are a summary by answering the two common questions that are often provoked by Jesus' blessing for those who believe without seeing, namely, what is this blessing? How can I find this blessing? So one, what is the blessing of believing without seeing? John summarizes the blessing as life. Verse 31 See, biblically, a blessing is not just a happy event or good fortune. A blessing is a declaration of God's favor. And here, John summarizes it as life. It's a key word in John's gospel. Life here is far more than the absence of just physical death. This life is the very essence of life itself. John 1 verse 4, in him, that is Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. This life is everlasting life. John 3 verse 36, whoever believes in the Son, that is Jesus, has eternal life. This life is fullness of life now. John 10 verse 10, I, Jesus speaking, have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And this life is found only in Jesus. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so now in summary, and as an explanation of the blessing Jesus is offering for those who have not seen, those who believe will have life in his name. Verse 31, life that is in Jesus himself. Now, perhaps you're sitting there and saying, look, I've been to Easter Sunday before. (laughs) I, I believe in Jesus and I have life in his name. Well, now, my friends, let me challenge you. Let me challenge you not to stop just in the entranceway, having gone through the door to life, but to keep moving and experience the abundance of life that Jesus has to offer for those who trustingly obey him. Will you do that? There's more on offer, you know. Not just partially alive, but fullness of life with energy and stamina and the ability to have joy even over the harshest of circumstances. Perhaps, though, you are not yet convinced by the resurrection of Jesus. Well, let me ask you this. Would you not at least like to be convinced? (laughs) Isn't the resurrection of Jesus pretty good news if it's true? Is not this blessing a benefit beyond any other kind of good fortune or happiness available anywhere else in the entire universe? You don't think so? Jesus is not just offering us mere monetary success that tarnishes or spoils, or only physical beauty that fades or can be misused, or bare religious moralism and rules that bind us to unattainable standards. 
Jesus is giving away life itself. He died on the cross, taking the punishment for your sin that you might not have to die eternally. He he died to remove your guilt and wash away completely the stain of your sin so that it is gone. Now he is risen to give you life in him, abundance. That's not just a little bit, that's a lot. Everlasting. Not just now, forever. Completely and utterly satisfying beyond any drug, any experience or thrill. For this life is not merely a part of life, much less a perversion of life. This is life itself. Don't you want the resurrection to be true? The other common question that comes naturally from the answer to the first is, how can I get this blessing? Perhaps now I realize that I do want it after all. John's answer to that question is quite simply, these are written so that you may believe. That is, John has carefully gathered the evidence, recounting what will be most helpful because least likely to have been invented, even the account of an intimate follower of Jesus who doubted. No one's going to put that in if it didn't happen. Someone like Thomas. So that we might believe in Jesus and find life in him. Now, we cannot see Jesus today as Thomas did. But God has revealed himself in history. And by the standards of the science of history in this book, We have all the evidence we need to believe the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, not as fantasy, but as fact. Seeing is believing, people say. Actually, Thomas had seen quite a lot of Jesus before this this event here. He'd seen the eyes of the blind opened. He'd seen Lazarus raised from the dead. But now he not only saw, he heard Jesus speak the doubts of his heart and faith rose up within him so that he cried, my Lord and my God. Then Thomas believed. Then he found life. Seek the blessing of believing without seeing because it brings you alive.
How? When we read this book, when it is explained by the Spirit of God, Jesus is speaking. See, here there isn't only credible eyewitness testimony from history. There's plenty of that, but not, not only that. Here there is also a living word that speaks life. You see, as we, as we like Thomas, gather week after week, Sunday by Sunday, open the Bible together, the risen Jesus is present. Not in the same way as uh, he was then, to be sure. But Jesus does stand among us. He knows your secret fears, your troubling doubts, your personal insecurities. He knows. He hears what you said before you came in this room, just a few friends. And the risen Jesus speaks. Do not disbelieve, but believe, so that by believing you may have life. pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that this Easter Sunday, as we are in you who rose again, we would come alive. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.